This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Well, uh, the concept of quantitative easing, or QE, isn't a foreign one to those people in the world of finance. But for many people who have more closely followed the economy since the recession, it's one that has become a part of the Federal Reserve's landscape. QE, for the most part, taken care of, at least for now here in the U.S., but it isn't done around the world. The European Central Bank made the decision last week to begin asset purchases as a way to stabilize their economy and start the rebuilding process. Right now, uh, we're going to have a little bit of QE 101 since we're here at a school, at a college, as we welcome in Wharton Assistant Professor of Finance, Krista Schwartz. Great to have you. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. I mean, let's go back several years and and really discuss how we, we kind of got to having to have QE as part of the vernacular. Right. So QE um, certainly is something that's become a household word in the past few years. uh, And it's a Fed program that has been in place for quite some time, um, tapering the uh, sort of ending of asset purchases that in and of itself lasted about a year. Um, So people are familiar with QE um, as a phrase, but they may not understand precisely what's behind it. And What QE means is that the Fed's portfolio is extraordinarily large. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess just to give a little background on the Fed's policy tools, historically it has been all about moving the Fed funds target rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the start of the financial crisis, or actually a few months into it, they had brought the Fed funds target rate down to the lowest level they could, a range between zero and a quarter uh, percentage point, but they wanted to do more. And so enters QE. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the idea is that they could perhaps affect other rates, not just that short-term overnight Fed funds target rate, but that they could affect rates further out that may actually boost consumption, help to revive the housing market, um, and they could possibly do that by purchasing assets such as treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and a bit of agency securities themselves um, in order to boost prices on those securities, bring down yields. And indeed, there is quite a bit of evidence that this has um, has affected interest rates longer out. And they have dropped dramatically. It's always hard to know the counterfactual would. They have dropped dramatically anyway for other reasons. Um, But a lot of researchers have shown, have isolated effects from QE um, purchases in particular. So what this leaves us with now in a, you know, you could think of it as a post-QE world, Mm. or you could think of it actually as QE extension, because the Fed is not allowing its large portfolio of assets to mature and run off. Rather, they're continuing to reinvest whatever is maturing from that portfolio. And so they're maintaining that very large portfolio um, for the time being. And they've said that they will continue to do that even after they start to raise interest rates. So the steps are QE was introduced, 
and then it was tapered, meaning it was purchases were made slower and slower till they went to zero. Yep. And so now they have this four and a half trillion dollar portfolio, which pre-QE started out at around eight hundred billion. Um, and there have been a couple of mechanical changes in order to be able to keep um, short interest rates targeted at a certain level, such as they've introduced giving banks interest on their reserve holdings, which is very important yep. um, and is a huge piece in maintaining rates, maintaining the the level of rates when they begin to rise. So it... Um, so we had QE introduction, we had tapering. Now we have a period where we're waiting for rates to begin to um, have, start this upward cycle, yeah. right? And it's been a long time since we've had a hike in rates. Um, the last one was 2006. So <laughs> I read a quote yesterday that it was possible that a third of the traders on Wall Street have never seen a rate hike, <laughs> which is entirely, um, I think, uh, within uh, a, 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 a certainly a conservative estimate. Um, and then after they begin to hike rates, which could be for some time, the latest statement suggests that at earliest it would be in June. Yeah. But Fed funds futures contracts um, and other market-based measures of expectations suggest that it might be further out, such as September, December. Um, it's possible it even begins early next year. And in, in fact, clearly the Fed always leaves its uh, self room for deviating from whatever the current plan is. Yeah pending incoming economic data and uh, how the inflation outlook is. And so then the next step is going to be unwinding the balance sheet. And they've already said that they're not going to do that by selling securities that would probably make rates spike and mm -hmm. it would be disruptive to markets, rather that they'll let them gradually roll off and mature, which will probably take five to 10 years, mm -hmm. um, just in a ballpark estimate. And the implications from interest on reserves for banks is that the Fed will, so it has this big chunk of assets that earn some kind of dividend, you know, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, you're getting payments from those. Liabilities previously had been largely just currency in circulation. Yeah. And if you have a dollar bill in your pocket, have you gotten a dividend from that lately? <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> no. no. <laughs> so that's the the beautiful thing of creating money is that you indeed don't pay anything on your liabilities then. Yeah. Now the liabilities consist more um, than half uh, uh, far more than half of excess reserves. And these are reserves that now the Fed started paying interest on. Yeah. And so they're going to be paying on the liability side. And what they pay is going to depend on what the level of rates is. So it's certainly conceivable at a certain level that, um, say, 4 or 5%, that with a balance sheet the size mm -hmm. of $4.5 trillion and with the low rates that they're earning on the assets that they have right now, that they may end up actually having to borrow intertemporally. Um, rather than historically, they've had chunks of cash that they hand over to the Treasury, mm -hmm. um, which that's what we call seniorage. And that 
in, in the last few years has been pretty big, $80, $90 billion uh, that they've passed along. So that'll be significantly lower. And I think that's something that is certainly not on the radar screen of most market participants because it is quite a ways off. Mm-hmm. But it's a fact, and it's it's pretty mechanical. It's nothing to, I think, be um, alarmed about, but it you know, market participants tend to become alarmed about things as they occur rather than <laughs> well, and, um, far in advance. And, and that's the interesting and thing. And the general press. Be, because uh, of, you can go back uh, the, probably the last couple of years, and every time there was an FOMC meeting, uh, Wall Street was like on pins and needles. Uh, everybody that was you know involved in trading somehow, some way was like, okay, are interest rates going up? Are they going to go up this time? Right. Are they, are, you know, and, and they were just, they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's been an interesting uh, kind of uh, approach that first uh, Mr. Bernanke had, and now Janet Yellen have, of being very uh, cautious to some respects, very kind of letting a lot of the data dictate how they do this. And even now that we're getting you know very good numbers on jobs, uh, the GDP numbers are better. There's still this very kind of wait and see attitude by the Federal Reserve in terms of doing anything uh, with rates. Right. So there is a wait and see attitude. There has been for some time. I think it's appropriate because it we are in a kind of a precarious situation. There are a lot of things going on right now that could complicate matters, such as the um, crisis, well, the, the crisis that's been going on for some time in the euro area. Um, and the announcement of a large stimulus that's going to be coming up there for the next year and a half. Um, Japan has also been working to stimulate their economy, and so these things imply a a stronger dollar, which could certainly affect imports in that it brings the prices of those down. That could weigh on inflation and keep inflation lower than the, the Fed's uh, the two percent where they want, would like to see it, and it could weigh on exports, and that then our products aren't as competitive. Yeah. And even if, say, a company is able to maintain whatever level of sales in a local economy, uh, whatever level of sales they had before the dollar was higher, when yeah. they repatriate those dollars, their their profits are going to be lower. So, uh, let me ask you this: because one of the the things that uh, a lot of people ha- have wondered is what is going to be that quote-unquote tipping point for not only Janet Yellen, but also for the uh, the regional Fed presidents in terms of making that decision, say, okay, now let's bump interest rates up. Let's let's take the Fed funds rate. Let's take it up to a quarter or let's take it up to a half. And, you know, because they're not going to make a huge jump to, to 2% right out, right out of the gate. But, but what do you think that tipping point is? Because, you know, just going through all that data – we, we certainly are in a better spot, but I think not only the Fed, but a lot of people realize that this is not, let's say, you know, 2002 or 2001, you know, when we had a, a very robust economy. We're still building this back up. Yeah. So all good points. Um, given the divergence of views, as you alluded to on the FOMC and with the Fed president, sure, I yeah. think that there's kind of a range of desires and expectations out there from Fed officials. And so that means that it's very difficult to know exactly what consensus Janet Yellen is going to build amongst um, the these these FOMC members. So right now, 
their most recent statement kept the the term um, patience in it, which suggests, well, not just suggests, but effectively she had stated uh, in December that that would mean no rate hikes for at least two more meetings, which puts us at June. Now, the statement today was, I would say, other than the fact that it continued to have the word patience in it, I think it was, for relative to my expectations, a little more hawkish than I would thought it would be. Um, it pointed to low inflation um, and stated that the, that expectations were for inflation to fall further, which I think is is true. Yeah. Um, cores at one point two percent. Sorry, headlines at one point two percent, being weighed <laughs> on heavily by oil prices. Um, but even core is at one point four percent, and if right. that's expected to fall further, then. And, and I think it's entirely possible with um, oil prices being as low as they are and the lag that that takes to feed through into gasoline prices and consumers, um, that inflation could be even headline inflation could be negative in coming months. And I mm. think it would be difficult to explain why the Fed is tightening in that type of environment. Yeah. So um, now, again, the, the statement today said that it saw these effects as transitory and saw in hmm. the medium term that inflation would be back at their target. Right. So that suggests that there is a bit, you know, leaning of not having it be much further off and perhaps even June would happen. It, they like to leave themselves room. So given the fact that market expectations have been pushed out into the future somewhat further break-even inflation rates, the inflation compensation, um, the market-based inflation compensation measure, the difference between the yield on a nominal treasury and a real treasury security, that has dropped dramatically in the last couple of months. I already mentioned the the push-out in Fed funds futures. Um, And so market participants are not pricing in a hike until end of the year. Given that, perhaps Yellen wants to signal that it could happen earlier and so uh, pave the way for markets to not be surprised if that indeed does occur. Yeah. So it's possible that she's just leaving herself some some room for flexibility. It's also possible that this is a difficult consensus to build given the range of views. Um, right now at the voting members, there's one that's on the hawkish side and one that's on the dovish side. Um and now is is June the next uh, FOMC meeting or is there one in between? No, there's one in March. Yeah, okay. So that'll mean that Wall Street can relax in the month of March not, not having <laughs> not having to worry about about uh, you know jumping at, at expectations at least uh, at least at that point. All else equal, but that's also going to be when the ECB kicks off their that's true Q, too, their yeah. own QE yeah. and we'll have those first 50 billion purchases, 50 billion euro purchases. Well, let me ask you about that because because for the longest time uh, the ECB it didn't seem like wanted to they, they wanted to stay away from asset purchases in every way shape or form. And obviously it's 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 quite a bit different formula over there than it is here because in the United States, doing the asset purchases, it's one country. Doing that in Europe, you're talking about a variety of different companies, a variety of uh, countries, excuse me, a variety of different philosophies. Some people were for it. Some people did not like it. It, it's, it was a very hard thing, I think, for Mario Draghi to really push through at the end because of so many different factors involved. Do you agree? Absolutely. And Draghi has been 
um, creative in how he's communicated these things to push through uh, changes that may otherwise not be palatable to certain uh, certain member states of the euro area. And yeah. you're absolutely right that it's a very politically charged topic to have the ECB, which is this centralized institution purchasing government securities, securities that are issued by individual countries in the euro area because they're, you know, that's to fund their debt and it increases their debt to GDP ratios. And some of them have been less fiscally responsible than others. And there's no... You could name a lot of them right now, which ones they are too. So yes, that's also... Widely known in the press, um, Greece, I guess, has been the focus mo- in the past few years because of the debt crisis, and then also uh, more recently with the elections there. And so, given that there isn't a fiscal union and that there isn't something that brings these countries together on being um, disciplined with how they how much that they raise what their spending is a relative to growth this makes it hard to argue that the this central institution then should actually be some see it as supporting or perhaps monetizing the debt if the government buys the debt of these countries then sorry if the ecb buys the debt of these countries then is that effectively saying it's okay to run up your deficit even sure. further? Yeah. Um, we're going to be here to purchase it. Don't worry. And then if, goodness forbid, um, these securities are defaulted upon, who is end up holding the bag? The ECB. So the And this is the idea of risk sharing that has been a popular term with regards to the ECB and the euro area and, and, and these types of questions. Now... What the one there are many sort of stipulations that Draghi put on these ECB purchases and QE that's going to run from March through to uh, near the end of 2016. And some of those, so it's going to be about a trillion euros total, he had stated, which was larger than what a lot of people had been expecting. And you know, it's interesting, actually, that the so the SNB, the Swiss National Bank uh, move, came right before the ECB move, mm-hmm. which came right before the Greek election, and all of those are kind of in the same direction. Sure, yeah. Um, in underscoring that conditions in the euro area are indeed precarious, and so one of the one of the the conditions of this quantitative easing by the ECB is that the national central banks themselves are the ones that are buying the government securities of each individual country. Right. Now, you could think of that as not mattering for risk sharing because these national central banks then are all part of the balance sheet of the ECB. And so, indeed, that risk is shared anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could think that perhaps it does in some tiny way um, help to isolate risks in given countries that could perhaps leave the euro area. So say Greece, the Greek central bank buys a lot of Greek debt in rounds of QE, and then Greece leaves the euro area. Well, that part of the ECB's balance sheet then effectively disappears too, and who takes the loss is it's, it's the Greek central yeah. bank. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because of uh, how... The level of success that we saw here in the United States because of QE, uh, it it almost made it, in my mind, 
you know, why wouldn't the ECB move forward with this even quicker because of the success that we've seen here in the United States in terms of, you know, building the economy back up? But again, it goes back to uh, what we were just talking about with so many different pieces to this puzzle. It's hard to get everybody on the same page. But that being said, is what happened in the United States in terms of uh, keeping the, the funds rate low and, and the, the asset purchases they did, is that kind of the formula that hopefully will the ECB will be able to follow and make the, the European economy better over the next few years? So I certainly think it's going to have an effect. I think it's going to be a positive effect for the, the euro area and for growth there. Um, and I expect it to bring down – it already has brought down yields, just the announcement alone. Yeah. Um, and that's really what they need. So the governments are going to have lower financing costs, and this should should be helping everyone. So you could also make an argument that this is good for U.S. growth. The, mm-hmm. the negative side is that it's making the dollar stronger, yields coming down in the euro area and not in the U.S. or relative to the U.S. Then yeah. it makes um, the dollar stronger than it would be otherwise. That said, stronger growth in the euro area should also be good for the U.S. more – um, more demand for imports from the U.S., et cetera. Yeah. And yes, there was another point that you had brought up. Uh, about, uh, and I drew a blank. But well, well okay. let's, let's move on to, to, to another thing because just with the job growth alone that we've seen here in the United States over the last several months, uh, that's a part, a big part of the decision process for the Federal Reserve, is it not, in terms of that economic data that they want to see kind of in place. So, you know, those numbers for job growth have been, you know, 200, 250, a couple of 300s in there the last few months. If those numbers continue, let's say, through June, it just makes it that much easier for the Federal Reserve to say, yes, now we can we can go ahead and we feel good about it. And especially if GDP in, in the first quarter and even the, maybe the, the preliminary on the second quarter come back very good as well. Yes. And thank you for bringing that up because that's actually the point that I was going to mention with regards to the ECB as well. Okay. They have been less flexible with policy because their mandate's less flexible. So sure, yeah. here we have this yeah. focus on growth and it's important and particularly in the regime of Janet Yellen, we're paying close attention to not just headline unemployment, but also labor force participation yeah. and wage growth. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, we, we consider ourselves to have a dual mandate. We're focusing on that and we're focusing on stable prices. In the Euro area, it's been a very narrow target, and their goal and their mandate has been very explicit that inflation should be below 2%. And so the rest of this broad view that perhaps the Fed might act on has not been as much a part of the picture, and it's difficult to argue for ECB um, for ECB policy changes in, in light of that, yeah. uh, in light of their, their inflation goal, and inflation has been running low, they, yeah. Um, yeah, into deflation, in fact. Um, for, uh, with regards to the U.S. jobs data, so we've had some good things, we've had some less good things. I think that, as you say, the headline pictures, um, the unemployment rate, it's down to a level that is within the range of what uh, sustainable um sustainable growth would be for uh and uh low 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 inflation for or inflation around target for the the US um but at the same time if you look at wage growth that's very low it's come yeah. down that suggests that 
um, prices are going to come down as well uh, in the future. And, you know, the labor force participation rate hasn't recovered to the extent that we have a lot of people who yeah. just aren't being counted in the unemployment rate. A lot of people have said that that, that, that the combination of, of the labor force participation rate, which is still down, I think, in the high 62s right now, uh, that, you know, when it was really going going well, it was what, around 67%, I think, something like that, uh, that, that those numbers may not be able to be reached again for quite some time, maybe a decade or so, just because of the fact that uh, a lot of the people that dropped out of the workforce uh, are people that uh, maybe of the baby boomer generation that are saying, I- I've had enough. You know, maybe I've, I've done a decent enough job or maybe I want to just, you know, I want to volunteer. I want to work part time. That's that's basically what they've they've kind of uh, they've kind of decided. So that labor participation rate, I think, is a key number. But I think it's almost you have to have a lower expectation for it than maybe say a lot of people do. There may be a new normal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you think is is the key now for for the uh, for the Fed going forward in terms of I mean, June is the expectation, at least right now. What do you think is the realistic goal? I think a realistic goal would be later in the year than June. I think clearly it's not going to come before June and that my own expectation is that headline inflation is going to drop further and perhaps go negative in the next few months. And that will sort of, to some extent, tie their hands in um, raising rates. Yeah, exactly. So as long as that lasts... And you know the outlook for oil prices. Nobody knows. <laughs> well, even with your oil, guess is as good as mine. Yeah, but even with oil prices down, everybody's enjoying the fact that we can you know go across the bridge to New Jersey here and pay less than two dollars a gallon. This is true for gas yes. if need to. Thanks for coming in, Krista. Thanks very much for having me. It's great, a pleasure. Great to have you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.